Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Uh, The fact that I came across this story made me want to frame this story as a way to see more about some of the interesting ways that black perspectives and and black actions uh, become important uh, during the Revolutionary War. That's author and Journal of the American Revolution contributor Benjamin Karp discussing his new article on Captain Abraham Van Dyke. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Benjamin Karp, and he'll be discussing an interesting article uh, about a commander that is little known with a very interesting backstory, Abraham Van Dyke. Dr. Karp's article uses the uh, occupation of New York City as a backdrop, if you would, uh, for a number of interesting stories that occurred during that time. One of them is the story of Abraham Van Dyke. Now, Van Dyke will be charged uh, twice, faced twice with military justice. Uh, and in different cases, he believes that happens for different reasons. One is he's betrayed, uh, and another he actually hunts down and kills the man he believes betrayed him. Um, it's a fascinating study of of military justice, of maybe poor decision-making, uh, in the backdrop of the American Revolution. Uh, so sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Benjamin Karp. Benjamin Karp, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Tell us about your background. Sure. Uh, I come from an academic background. Uh, I first caught the bug of getting really interested in the American Revolution when I was an undergraduate, although I had plenty of um, history touring and a dad as a social studies teacher when I was a kid. But it was really as an undergraduate that I started to get into the revolution. Uh, I, I wrote a dissertation on, on the American Revolution in the cities uh, when, uh, in graduate school at the University of Virginia. And, um, and yeah, I've, I've been writing about, you know, di- different types of misbehavior and political action in cities uh, for many years. Uh, and I've had this, this third book now come out on the burning of New York City in 1776. But I had all this research, not all of which I could fit in the book. And so it was just a really great opportunity to work with the Journal of the American Revolution to tell a story that I couldn't quite fit in my broader story about the burning of New York City. What first drew your interest into this topic? Sure. Yeah. I mean, well, I've been interested in the fire for 25 years since, since I was an undergraduate. And I'd, uh, you know, I'd read a little bit about Abraham Van Dyke, one of the characters in the story. Uh, but one of the interesting things that um, I started to really fixate on in my research on Van Dyke was his encounters with these um, with these two black men, one of which was testified to in 
1783 Inquiry into the Fire, which um, is a source I've been familiar with for about 25 years. Uh, but the other story I came across almost by accident uh, of seeing his name come up again in the papers of George Washington, right, because the, the, the papers from 1780 were published more recently than the papers from 1776. And seeing his name coming up again in Washington's correspondence, uh, it w- was just sort of fascinating. And obviously, the you know the the murder of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter um, have drawn more attention to trying to center black voices and actions. Obviously, that work had been going on for decades, uh, and, and it struck me as a really interesting and important challenge to look at the ways it, 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 that um, uh, Af- African American stories had overlapped with the stories that I was already telling about the the fire. There are other ways uh, that I bring up um, uh, the actions of African Americans during uh, during the revolutionary period uh, connected to the Great Fire. Uh, but Abraham Van Dyke, the fact that he had these two very significant encounters with black men over the course of his Revolutionary War story struck me as a story I really needed to tell. Tell us what's going on in New York during 1776. Sure. Uh, You know, New York City was really uh, thought to be the center of the action in 1776. When the British, uh, you know, leave Boston in March of 1776, they're temporarily in Halifax. They know they need a new strong point within North America in order to try and pacify this rebellion. Uh, And so both on the British side and the American side, there was kind of an understanding that New York City was kind of going to be the key. It's the key to the Hudson River and the Hudson Champlain Corridor. It's the key to New Jersey and Connecticut. Uh, It's the key to the Hudson River Valley. Uh, You know, so really thought to be important. And the British thought, fantasized, that uh, New York City was a much more likely loyalist stronghold than anywhere in New England. Uh, And so therefore, it would be an important place to kind of um, stage future campaigns against New England, but also rally uh, loyalism within the middle colonies. And so uh, everyone knows that Howe is going to invade uh, uh, New York. Washington is trying to do his utmost to defend it. He is occupying New York City proper from uh, April 1776 until the army is forced to evacuate it in September 15, uh, on, on September 15th. Uh, and so everyone knows that New York City is really important. At, at some point, it becomes clear to Washington that he can't stand up against the British Navy and the concentration of British forces on lower Manhattan, especially after Washington loses Long Island and Brooklyn. And so Washington has a decision to make. Is he going to try and stand there with his army and be defeated? Is he going to just retreat from the city or is he going to retreat from the city and burn it behind him? That is one of the questions that animates uh, my my book. Uh, It doesn't come up as much in my article for J.A.R., but it's the reason I got interested in Abraham Van Dyke's actions during the evacuation from New York on September 15th in the first place. Uh, and I want to say Van Dyke is very important in his role during the American occupation of New York as well, uh, because first as a militia captain and then as the captain of a unit within the Continental Army, uh, you, you see the Grenadiers taking various actions uh, throughout those months that I think really speak to uh, Van Dyke's character. Could you talk about the early life of Abraham Van Dyke? Yeah, uh, I have not completely nailed down Van Dyke from a genealogical perspective. There's some gaps in his life that I'm not that well aware of. Uh, I'm not positive 
that he was a Marine lieutenant during the Seven Years' War, although I saw some suggestion that he was. I believe he was 57 years old by 1776. Uh, but again, right, I'd like a little bit of more help from genealogists maybe down the road to really nail down that story. It seems clear that he was a felt maker at one point. Uh, he was definitely owned uh, an inn on the corner of John Street and Broadway uh, where he has he advertises like, oh, I've got a leopard to show you. Oh, I've got um, 11, an 11-foot cow. Come pay to see this and have some drinks. Um, and then uh, uh, his tennis court becomes important. Uh, you know, his, his tavern is the place where a lot of the different militia captains meet. Some militia recruiting takes place there. Um, uh, when uh, Marinus Willett famously uh, relieved British soldiers of some of their arms, when the British soldiers evacuate the, the, their barracks in New York City, uh, they hide these arms in Van Dyke's tennis court. Uh, so Van, Van Dyke um, was an important son of liberty uh, and seems to have been from New York City's, you know, middle class and working class activist culture, Uh, you know, having been an artisan, having been a tavern keeper, uh, being an influential political leader as a militia captain. That seems to be his role. He doesn't make it into a lot of the, the histories. But if you're looking for clues, you can see Van Dyke and the Grenadiers popping up in various at various points before, um, you know, up to the American occupation of New York City in, in, in early 1776. What was his role in the army? Yeah, I mean, all sorts of things during the funeral procession for this famous Indian killer, Michael Cressap. The, the, the Grenadiers are, are, are part of that parade. Uh, the Grenadiers build a coastal battery. Uh, Christopher Benson, a loyalist wine cellar, uh, you know, writes this document about how he was bullied and harassed. And the Grenadiers seem to be playing this, uh, you know, this really important role. Uh, Van Dyke's unit uh, initially resisted being folded into the Continental Army, but then they are folded into the Continental Army. Uh, and, uh, and, and New York troops, you know, were very active in trying to say, hey, we don't trust New Englanders to defend the city. We want to be the ones, you know, placed in certain um, in certain posts to defend the city. So Van Dyke comes up at various points, uh, you know, little scattered elements here and there, um, you know, before he enters my story in a really dramatic way during the Battle of Kipps Bay when the British land on Manhattan Island uh, and then later that night raise the flag over New York City, the British flag. Could you describe the circumstances of his capture? Yeah, unfortunately, it's very complicated because there are two different stories. I mean, his his unit is one of the last to evacuate New York City, and all of his men are able to escape. But his friend, General General Alexander McDougall, later writes to Washington. He, he later describes what had happened to Van Dyke. He being a heavy, fat man um, and presumably 57 years old, he wasn't able to flee from the British Army in time. He can't keep up with the rest of his men. So he gets kind of stuck in the woods and then turns around, goes back to New York City, and is forced to go into hiding. Now, what he should have done was surrender to the British. That's what officers were supposed to do. But instead, he appears to hide with the Learys. They had a livery stable on Cortland Street. Um, he hides with them and, uh, and has a, a black man bringing him food while he's in hiding. Uh, it's not clear whether this person was enslaved by him, enslaved by the Leary family, or was a, f- a free black man, for all we know. Uh, very unclear, but this is what he does. Now, it's not clear whether he is then captured the day after the 15th, 
Um, you know, and, and it seems as if he might have been. The, the British prison records appear to have indicated that, uh, although, you know, and, and other records seem to have indicated that he was captured shortly after September 15th. But then there's testimony from two different people in 1783 that distinctly remembered him, him having been caught on the morning of the or in the early morning hours of September 21st which were the, the hours when the fire was raging. So the only explanation for that is that either the British records were wrong and he was in hiding until the 21st, or, the, well, there's three explanations, or those accounts saying that he was captured on the 21st were completely made up, or the third explanation is that he was captured on the 16th, then he was let out on parole, which was a courtesy that was sometimes extended to uh, American officers, and then while on parole, he went back into hiding during the fire. And, and, if, and if, if that is the explanation, then that is the most suspicious, because it means that Van Dyke basically abused his parole, broke his parole, coordinated with the other elements who were acting to set New York City on fire, and then was somehow found in the middle of this uh, fire trying to conceal himself. Um, so that would make his actions look the sketchiest. But, it, but again, there are conflicting accounts of when he was captured and an insufficient explanation for why he would be noted to have been captured both by the British, both on the 16th and the 21st. Regardless, the British decide that he is such a suspicious char character that they keep him in prison for about, uh, for I think about eight, 17, 18 months. Do we know if he was actually betrayed? Yeah. Again, th this, this testimony comes from Alexander McDougall writing to George Washington on Van Dyke's uh, behalf. Uh, where he says a, a, a Negro man betrayed him. Now, was this the exact Negro man who had been bringing him food? There, there's also an indication in the 1783 testimony of, um, you know, of a British officer, you know, saying that a black person had alerted an artillery officer on the morning of the 21st and, sh and, and revealed Van Dyke's hiding place. Now, that might not have been the exact same person, but maybe these two different black men knew each other and were part of an information network together. It's like it's too close a coincidence um, that, uh, that a, a black man pops up in this particular story from two completely different stories told by people on opposite sides of the war. You know, so clearly... Um, uh, uh, you know, we know that a, a black person had been bringing him food and that that person was the one who had supposedly betrayed him. If that was the same person who had alerted this British artillery officer about his hiding place, that story seems pretty darn plausible. But even if they were two different men, um, it, it seems likely that maybe there, there was an information network there. So, yeah, um, the idea that through McDougal, Van Dyke himself felt that he had been betrayed by a, by a black person is really interesting. Why did he have a prior expectation of loyalty from this black person in the first place? Uh, you know, one possibility that I'd even consider is maybe it was a soldier under his command um, who then decided that he was, he would have you know, a better chance at, um, at freedom and advancement if he carried favor with the British. I, I don't know. Um, there was no indication that he was a soldier. It just says, a, a Negro man, which could mean anything, doesn't necessarily speak to whether the, whether the man was enslaved or not. Interesting person in your article, uh, Benjamin, who was Pitkin? Yeah, this is a separate story from later in Van Dyke's life, after he's already, you know, been in this British prison in New York City, in his hometown of New York City. Uh, and then he rejoins the army. And the next time we see his name pop up is at the Morristown encampment in the terrible winter of 1779 to 1780. And 
there's a, you know, the orderly books, right, from the Continental Army always talk about big court martials. And so in March, there was a court martial that Van Dyke had supposedly asked for, um, uh, uh, where he had killed a black soldier and, uh, and asked to be acquit- exonerated from this, you know, and he was because his actions were found to be highly justifiable. Now, it didn't say who this person was, but I got lucky in that I was able to look in muster roll records and find out who it was that had been killed in this particular regiment. Um, and I see the name Prince Pitkin. And then I got even luckier, which is that the Connecticut Historical Society had a line item which had the documents related to the settlement of his estate um, and who took charge of his effects. So I was able to find out a lot more about Prince Pitkin, that apparently he had enlisted in 1777, uh, probably in exchange for his freedom, that he appears on muster rolls for months and months and months, all the way up until his death. Uh, on January 14th, 1780, um, uh, it, it appears that uh, he almost certainly belonged to the Pitkin family, which was one of the first families of Connecticut. His owner was the son of the former Connecticut governor, um, and, and, uh, and that family was actually connected to abolitionism in a, in a couple of different ways, uh, and, a, and a sort of just powerful and influential family from the East Hartford area in Connecticut. So I learned quite a bit about Pitkin and also learned how, uh, uh, you know, who, who, met, who took charge of his effects after his death. And so he seems to have died tragically, but it's not clear how or why. We don't know how he died. It only seems clear from the, the, this little mention of the court martial in the orderly books that somehow Abraham Van Dyke, this white uh, 60-something officer, was, was, was possibly responsible for um, Prince Pitkin's death. But, uh, but was acquitted on the basis of his actions having been highly justifiable. Now, this is suggestive, but not definitive. Unfortunately, there's not a lot written about the Morristown encampment. Uh, you know, there aren't a lot of primary source diaries or whatever that were well known to me that might like have something a little bit more gossipy that would put more flesh on this story. Um, but still, the fact that we know the name of the, uh, the man um, w- w- was something that I was able to contribute to through my research. What ultimately happens to Van Dyke? Yeah, well, then Van Dyke is kind of, uh, at, at some point a little while later, he's looking for a job as a Marine captain. Um, uh, and, uh, and Washington vouches for him and says, oh, with the service that he's been through, you know, this is a, a really good guy. So he's writing to Congress because it would be the Admiralty Board that would, ha- that would approve this appointment. You know, can you give him this position? Uh, and they're not quite willing to make him a Marine uh, captain. They make him a Marine lieutenant. He's a Marine lieutenant aboard the Saratoga, which was one of the ships that was initially escorting Henry Lawrence to uh, uh, to Paris to be part of the negotiation team. And instead, he's uh, uh, or or maybe he was just going to to England to look after his son. I forget. But in any case, he's captured and put in the t- Tower of London. Um, and so Henry Lawrence's uh, story must have intersected with Van Dyke's very briefly. And then by the end of the war, it seems as if Van Dyke has died because I saw some ads talking about Widow Van Dyke's Tavern as opposed to, uh, you know, so it seems clear that he died, but we don't know how. Old age, disease, probably not killed in action given the late stage of the war. Uh, But I don't know much more about his death or where he's buried or the exact date of his death. Uh, But again, there's this little moment of Washington vouching for Van Dyke. And, you know, one of my little hobbies is that there are three different American captains who are accused of having been involved in the fire 
that Washington vouches for um, one way or another. And Van Dyke is one of the people that Van Dyke uh, and other American officers vouch for on the basis of his patriotism, his service, the sacrifices that he he had made. They want him taken care of, even though some of the things that Van Dyke had done were pretty or were alleged to have done were pretty awful. You know, helping to burn his hometown, maybe help, you know, having killed this black man. Yes. Right. But we're not sure what makes it what made it a justifiable action. And yet here's Washington coming in at the end saying, hey, this is one of our guys. You know, I want to recommend him for the position he's seeking. How does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? Sure. I mean, one of my goals is to make sure that we understand the revolution from different perspectives and it's all and in all its complexity. Uh, there are many, many other scholars, you know, who I would list as being much more important than myself uh, for providing the uh, a, a black perspective on the revolution, you know, and, and the variety of black perspectives and black experiences during the revolution. Uh, the fact that I came across this story made me want to frame this story, at least in part in that way, as a way to see more about some of the interesting ways that black perspectives and, and black actions uh, become important uh, during the Revolutionary War. Um, I also wanted the opportunity to tell a fuller story of, uh, of Van Dyke himself, because I also think that he's an interesting character, somebody who we would qu- classify as a patriot, a Whig, a continental soldier, or, or you know, a, a rebel leader. Um, but, it, but, but again, who's not necessarily a very noble character. And I think that enables us to uh, see the revolution in a, in a more complicated way as well. So I think those were two of my goals. Um, And I'm also hoping that this story inspires people to look into Van Dyke's more and look into the Morristown winter a little bit more so that we can learn more about Prince Pitkin and how he met his, uh, how he met his end. Maybe other people will be inspired to look into Pitkin's particular regiment, which was obviously a multiracial regiment in a way that might be of interest to scholars as well. Benjamin Carp, Thanks again. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.